All right, good evening, Stone. It's good to be with you guys. I'm Tony, pastor in uh, Raleigh, North Carolina. It's a great privilege to be back uh, with you guys. This is like my second uh, church family. Thanks, bro. Matt Carter couldn't do that this morning. That was too heavy. He, he tried. Um, we're going to be in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39. If you've got a Bible, I'm going to read this text for us, and then we'll, we'll have a close look at it. And I pray that you'll, you'll leave tonight being encouraged in the gospel, as Paul uh, gives for us some really remarkable truths here in Romans chapter 8, uh, verses 31 to 39. So let's have a look at it. Verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We regard it as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And this is God's word. Let's pray together. Just a brief prayer. Now, Father, what we know not, please teach us. What we have not, please give us. And what we are not, please make us. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. I'm not sure who first popularized the sports cheer who dat, but several teams use it like the New Orleans Saints. It's a very complex, deep cheer, if you're not familiar with it. Who dat, who dat, who dat say going to beat them Saints? Well, Paul was not up on the who dat nation, but I think he would agree if he were here that that would be an apt cheer for Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39. He provides for us four who questions. And uh, to give you a bit of a summary, I have a chart for you guys as an expression of my love for you. I made a chart for you. The, the questions uh, are there, verses 31. He says, uh, who can be against us? And in each case, as he raises the question, the, the answer is nobody. Right? It's almost like a responsive reading. Who can be against us? The answer is nobody. Who shall bring any charge against us? Verse 33, the answer is Nobody. Who will condemn us? Nobody. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And once again, the answer is nobody. Now, we are not entitled to this grace. This is a wonder that all of this is true for us. Romans 1 to 3 unpacked for us the fact that we were sinners and we were under condemnation. But God has put forward his son, to be the propitiation for our sins, to die in our place, Romans 3, 21 uh, to 31. Paul talks about in chapters four and five of Romans that we are justified by faith alone in Christ alone, that you and I are declared righteous. In chapters six and seven, he talks about this now process we're in that we call sometimes sanctification, 
of growth in Christ's likeness. And it gets to chapter eight, and it is just a text that is filled with wonder. And really, I have three applications for you that I want to try to weave throughout the exposition here. I'm going to kind of give you the application on the front end. What, what, what should happen as a result of studying Romans 8, 31 to 39? Well, let me point you to three ideas. First of all, I think this text should lead us to worship. Romans 8 has been called by many people the greatest chapter in all the Bible. That's quite a claim. And the reason these people say it is because of all of the privileges that are unpacked for us in this glorious chapter. It reminds me of a story told by Sinclair Ferguson of two pastors from the Czech Republic several years ago, living in a very uh, troubled country at the time. And they visited the United States for a pastor's conference. And on the Saturday before the conference, the host took them to this massive supermarket, the kind of supermarket they were, were, were used to now. But these guys were not used to it. And their first instinct upon seeing all of these items was to burst into tears. And they looked to their host and they said, does this supermarket belong to the American government? It was inconceivable to them that all the people had access to these items. And in a similar way, when we, when we roll into Romans chapter 8, we really are stunned by all of the blessings of the gospel. And we want to turn to Paul and say, is this for all Christians? And he, of course, would answer us, yes. Romans 8, 1, there's no condemnation. He ends the chapter in verse 39, there's no separation. And in between no condemnation and no separation, <laughs> well, there are all kinds of privileges that should lead us to worship tonight. That we have a new nature, that the Spirit of God is indwelling us, that we have been adopted by God, that suffering will soon give way to glory, that the Holy Spirit is interceding for us, that God is turning all things together for our good. Romans 8 is a wonderful gift to us in that sometimes when our hearts grow cold and our affections cool, we need a place to go to rekindle our affections. And I would submit to you that Romans 8 is one of those awe chapters in the Bible that can reignite your heart afresh to worship. And the reality is, if our hearts do not worship, then, well, our whole lives are affected, right? Because behavior changes when affections change. Behavior doesn't change by people just telling you things to do, at least not over the long haul. You know how this works. You, you take, a, take a teenager, right? I have, I have uh, five kids. Almost all of them are teenagers now. You got a teenage boy. We'll call him James. He's 17. Parents have been telling him for years, James, why don't you take a shower, man? That'd be a great contribution to society. <laughs> James, why don't you, have you ever thought of deodorant? It's a great idea. Go love your neighbor and put deodorant on. James, why don't you, why don't you wash my car? That interests you? James, you ever thought about getting a job? No, James doesn't want to do any of that until James gets a girlfriend. Now, all of a sudden, behavior has changed. Guess who's taking a shower now? Yeah, James. Who's using deodorant? Who's going into Papa's cologne, you know, putting some brute on? And, and his room is like a, a hazard, you know, don't light anything near it. It's just a little dab will do you, James. No, he's, he is, he's ready to go now because he has a new love. And that's the way life works. You live out of the overflow of your heart. And if your heart is not enthralled with Jesus, then it will affect your behavior. To be a human is to be a lover. And the dominant question for us is, who do we love? 
what do we love, right? And the, the order of our loves really will determine the direction of our lives. What we love most affects our whole life. And so Romans 8 is just one of many chapters that I think should, should help us rekindle our affections for the Savior. A second takeaway from this chapter is that this text can lift you from discouragement. To be a discouraged Christian is not strange. It's, it's actually pretty normal. There are many things that can cause us to go into times of despair. In fact, Romans chapter 8, verses 33 to 38 give us three causes of despair, I think. You can despair because of your own sin. You can stumble. You can fall. And to come to a text like this and to read that God's verdict has already been pronounced over us, that is, that is glorious good news. Suffering can make you discouraged. And this text tells us that we are still in the grip of God's grace despite suffering. Death can discourage us. And this text tells us that nothing, not even death, can separate us from our great God. And so when you're discouraged, and it's going to be there from season to season, right? if you're not in it now, you will be at some point, where do you go? I would suggest Romans 8 is a great source of, of medicine for your soul. To be reminded of these gospel truths, they're basic truths, but for them to hit your heart, and they can lift you. Martin Luther, one of the leaders of the Protestant Reformation, was one among many Christian heroes who struggled with depression and discouragement. And he would, he would go through bouts of, of depression that were really dark. And on one occasion, his wife wanted to rebuke him. Her name was Katie, and she was quite a, a pistol. And she was tired of seeing Luther mope around. And so she decided to hang a black cloth over the door of their home, which was a cultural sign of death, of a funeral. And she put on a black dress as if she were going to a funeral. And Luther, here comes Luther, he's running from the church authorities. He has kidney stones. He has all kinds of stress on him. And now he comes home to see that somebody has died. And so Luther mopes in and asks Katie, what, what burden do you have to add to my already too many burdens? Who has died? And Katie said to Luther, God has died. And Luther got very angry. And he said, don't say that. God has not died. And Katie said, well, the way you're living and the way you're acting, it's as if God himself has died. Everybody needs a good wife like that to encourage them in seasons of darkness, right? That got Luther's attention. Katie knew her husband well. Luther went to his desk and he etched the, the Latin word vivit on his desk, which means he lives. It's the most basic of truths that we need impressed upon our hearts in times of discouragement. Like this text that says that Jesus was raised and he is praying for us. My friends, if you're discouraged tonight, I pray that these gospel truths would lift you. The tomb is empty, the throne is occupied. Jesus is not dead. There's a vacated tomb in the Middle East and an occupied throne in heaven. And on our dark days, where do we go? We go to texts like this to lift us. And I think this text, thirdly, should not only lead us to worship and lift us from despair, but it should embolden us for mission. This text speaks of suffering and of persecution, which will come for anyone seeking to take the gospel to the nations, for churches like Stone that is committed to making disciples around the world. You can endure opposition and hardship with the promises of Romans 8. 
They need to be meditated upon, memorized. And so with all that in view now, let's have a look at these four questions. Who can be against us? Question number one. Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? Now I think the expression these things refers to all of Romans up to this point. That's the majority opinion among the commentators, which is a fascinating question. How would you summarize Romans chapter 1 to chapter 8? What phrase could you use without writing a, a, you know, pages of material to summarize all that's been said from Romans 1 to 8? Well, Paul, I think, summarizes it right here with this little expression, God is for us. God is for us. The gospel is telling us that God is for us. Don't you love it when people are for you? They got your back. They want to see your good. This is God Almighty, and he is for us. Don't let pain and hardship deceive you into thinking he's not for you. If you are in Christ Jesus, he is for you. Many will certainly oppose you, but ultimately, God has you. I pray that God will grant you faith to believe this tonight. God is for us. Now, this is a dangerous statement, we must admit, because we live in a world of radical religious fanatics who think their God is for them when they kill people, for example. And, of course, they are completely wrong. Even though people will abuse this idea that God is for us, we don't want to neglect it. That is the message of Romans. The God who has called us, justified us, and will glorify us really is for us. All the powers of hell may come against us, but they cannot ultimately prevail because God is on our side. Romans 8.31 is true for the Christian. For years now, I've been doing youth camps. I've been doing them all summer long as well. About to lose my, my voice as a result this summer and my mind, I think. Um, but and there's this little ritual every, every week at the end of camp. You guys have probably experienced this if you grew up in the church at all, where everybody wants, they want you to sign stuff. It's not always the speaker, it's everybody else at camp, but always they're coming up to me at the end, and I think sometimes it's just because I look like Chris Daughtry, and they want their friends to know <laughs> that Chris Daughtry was their camp pastor. But um, they, they come up and they say, Pastor, will you, will you sign this? Will you sign my hat? Will you sign my shirt? Occasionally it's even their Bible, and which I'm always like, I'm not signing your Bible, okay? I didn't write the Bible. Um, and they always want you to write a verse. And I don't know who is to blame for this in the Christian subculture. The life verse. What's your life verse? I don't know where this stuff comes from. And when, when I'm feeling rascally, you know, sometimes I'll pull one out of Exodus. Like, don't cook a young goat in its mother's milk. Uh, <laughs> Exodus 23, 19. Go and do likewise, kids. That's a verse to live on. What a great life verse. Don't be cooking goats, okay, in milk. Um, but when I'm feeling more pietistic, I write Romans 8.31. That's my life verse. That's my go-to verse. It's hard for me to imagine anything better in all the world than this God who is blazing with holiness, who is awesome, is for me, not against me. And you, if you're in Christ Jesus. I hope you believe that. Now, if you were to ask, how do we know God is for us? That's a good question. It's not just, it's not wishful thinking. It's not, man, I really hope this is true. It's not like Peter Pan, I believe in fairies, I believe in fairies. I'm just gonna keep saying it until it's true. No. 
The reality that God is for us is rooted in space-time history. Something has happened in history that has demonstrated once and for all that God is for his people. And it's in verse 32. 32 is tied to 31. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him graciously give us all things? Christian, you want to know that God is for you? You look to the cross. The cross is God's ongoing demonstration for us that he really is for us. Christ's work for us on the cross ensures us of God's continued grace toward us. And Paul is just speechless, right? He's, he's, he's lifted us, or he's, his heart is lifted in worship as he considers that God did not spare his own son. Notice that language. His own son, which has echoes of Genesis, where Abraham was about to give up his own son, and God intervened. But in this case, the father really did give up his own beloved son. And Paul says, if God has done the big thing, give up Jesus for us all, will he not do the smaller thing? It's an argument from the greater to the lesser. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If he's done the cross, he's going to get us to glory. If he's given up his own beloved son, well, it's a demonstration that he really is for us. And he's not going to let us go. If he's done the big thing, he'll do the small thing. I know we have a lot of college students here at the seven. One day you'll have some kids, possibly. We have five of them, um, and they always want to go to Disney World. And I'm not a fan of theme parks, to be honest. It's the idea of standing in the heat for an hour to ride a 10-minute ride, being buckled in by a teenager is not my idea of fun. Okay, I just don't trust the teenagers buckling me in. Um, but I take my kids to the theme park. We went to Universal recently because I love my kids. And if I'm going to spend all that money to fly to Orlando, that's five kids and one wife and me, seven, and then pay for all those tickets. I mean, you need a, not a, an additional job just to go there. And let's say I'm driving to Disney World and I look over to my wife and I say, it's $20 to park. I'm not paying $20. She's going to say, oh, yeah, we will. We have paid all of this money. We have come all this way. We're going to pay $20. If God gave up his own son, his love spared no expense, will he not graciously with him give us all things? Now, all things doesn't mean everything you ever wanted. All things, I think, is tied to Romans 8, 28. He's working all things together for our good. Will he not graciously give us all things necessary to make us like his son and get us to our destination? Of course he will. God really is for us. The cross demonstrates it, and it demonstrates that he will always be for us. Well, that should encourage our souls. That should lead us to worship. That should embolden us for mission. The second question, he says, who shall bring any charge against us? Verse 33, this is, a judicial expression, Romans is filled with that if you've never read Romans, about being declared righteous by God, by faith in Jesus. No one can succeed ultimately, he says, because God has justified his people. So when the omnipotent righteous judge of all the earth says to the believing sinner, you're not guilty, then you're not guilty. There, there is no higher court of authority to appeal to. 
When God says you are justified, well, the ultimate gavel has come down. The case is closed. You are justified. How do we know God is for us? Well, he's put forward his son in place of us, and he has justified us as we believed in the son. And this truth, my friends, gives us unshakable peace as it pertains to the future. I mean, Romans 8 is a chapter filled with reasons you should be assured of your identity in Christ and your future inheritance. I don't know if you've ever flown much, but when you fly, you can, you can tell the difference typically in a confirmed passenger and a standby passenger. Standby passengers are a little worried. They're on the phone, they're pacing, you know. They don't know if they're going to get on the flight or not. They don't have the confirmation that a confirmed passenger, when you're a confirmed passenger, you're just like, yo, just relaxed, you know, just chilling, whatever you're doing. You're just waiting to get on the plane. You know you're getting on the plane. And Romans 8 is showing us how we can have that kind of assurance. The Spirit of God is giving us confirmation that we belong to God. There is no one who's gonna ultimately bring a charge against us. Likewise, question three, who is to condemn us? It's really the same question, only it kind of comes at the answer in a, in a different way. Not only does he say that God, the righteous judge, has justified us, he says that Jesus was condemned on behalf of us. So no one is to condemn us, Romans 8, 1 begins that way, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The only one who can condemn us actually died for us, was raised for us, he says, and is at the right hand of God. And far from condemning us, Jesus is interceding for us, which is just remarkable, isn't it? My friends, good news of Romans is that you've been liberated. You've been set free. You don't fear future judgment. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. N.T. Wright says it well when he says, this truth is the foundation for Christian joy. We've been liberated. We sing so many songs about our guilt being removed, being liberated. I won't sing them out of respect for our musicians here. Songs like, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. Upward, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Or the old hymn, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. My friends, you know, one of the reasons why Christians sing and other religions don't, at least not the way we do, is because we've been liberated. Condemnation is removed. We are not slaves trying to earn merit before a God. We are not trying to earn acceptance with God. We are living from acceptance with God. We have been freed. We have been liberated. And what you do when you're freed is you sing. And for hundreds of years, the church has filled the earth with songs because the liberated people of God sing. Romans 8 should help us to do that, to realize what God has done on our behalf. Romans 8 should help you sleep and help you sing. I think that's what you see in the book of Acts. Acts 12, persecution. What's Peter doing in prison? Sleeping. And they can't wake the brother up. Go send an angel. See if you can get that guy up. 
Acts 16, persecution. Paul's not sleeping, he's singing. It's at midnight and he's singing. Why? Because they, they can chain the guys, they can chain the preachers, but they can't chain their soul. They've been liberated. And the peace of God can help you rest and the peace of God will cause you to sing in the midst of the hardest of times. He says here, Christ Jesus has died. He died for the very sins that would have condemned us. Christ Jesus was raised. His resurrection proved that his sacrifice was sufficient. The resurrection was the Father's amen to the Son's, it is finished. It has demonstrated once and for all that our sins really are forgiven. The resurrection assures us of our own future resurrection. Romans 8 is about that as well. Suffering, giving way to glory. Jesus offers dying people not just consolation, but bodily resurrection, which is remarkable. I love what D.A. Carson says. He says, I'm not suffering from anything that a good resurrection can't fix. (laughs) Amen. Christ Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. He occupies the highest seat of honor Having made perfect atonement for our sins, he sat down at the Father's right hand, Hebrews 1, 3, and he is our advocate, he is our high priest. He's not condemning us, he's praying for us. What a thought. We've already been told in Romans 8 that the Spirit is interceding for us. Now the Son is interceding for us. That is some serious prayer support, isn't it? Listen to what Louis Burkhoff, an old theologian, said about this reality of Jesus praying for us, for his people. It is a consoling thought that Christ is praying for us even when we are negligent in our prayer life, that he is presenting to the Father those spiritual needs which were not present to our minds and which we often neglect in our prayers, and that he prays for our protection against the dangers of which we are not even conscious, and against the enemies which threaten us, though we do not notice it. He is praying that our faith may not cease. Remember Jesus said that to Peter in a very tender moment when he says, Peter, Satan wants to sift you like wheat but I've prayed for you. And that we may come out victoriously in the end. Likewise, McShane put it well when he says, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. To put it another way, Jesus is more committed to you than you are to him. He's got you. He will hold you fast. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. When we stumble and when we fumble, Jesus is praying unceasingly, fervently, and successfully. And that should cause us to sing. That should cause us to be bold in mission. That should lift us from despair. Question four, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? You'll notice here Paul spends double the space in answering this last question. I won't spend double the sermon length in answering it, but it is worth noting. How much time Paul's spending on it? And I I think perhaps it is because Paul wants to impress now on the hearts of the readers and us. He wants to convince our hearts of the love of God. Because it's possible to know all the truths of Romans and be a very cold individual, to be very indifferent, to not be moved. That that shouldn't be the case, but it's possible. And so now Paul, I think, is aiming at our hearts 
to show us that Jesus not only defends us, he loves us. He wants our hearts to be melted by this grace. And to do so, he, he writes some, some beautiful, really poetic, worship-leading language as he puts the rhetorical pedal to the homiletical metal to convince us that Jesus really does love us. So the question is, who shall separate us? And he gives some possible separators. What about tribulation? Should, could pressure or trouble separate you? Or distress, that is inward or outward affliction? You may not feel loved in times of distress. And that's why we go back to the text. We listen to the text and not ourselves. That this distress, this affliction is not separating me. He's got me. How about persecution? A real threat in the first century world, a real threat around the world, as you all know very well. Can persecution separate you from the grip of God's grace? No. The answer is nobody. None of this is going to separate us. The fact is, my friends, if you are a Christian, you're gonna be opposed in many different ways. And if you knew you're gonna be persecuted, what text would you meditate on? If you knew serious opposition was coming soon, this will be a good one to meditate on. I've been reading recently of uh, George Whitfield, who was one of the preachers during the Great Awakening in the 1700s, and his biographer, Thomas Kidd, tells the stories of Whitfield's preaching, out, a lot of outdoor preaching, and he faced so much criticism and opposition, some of it very strange. For example, in 1742, Kidd writes, soon a hell of stones, dirt, rotten eggs, and pieces of dead cats pelted the preacher. <laughs> They're throwing dead cats at him. And then it gets worse. A clown climbed upon a man's shoulders and tried to slash Whitfield with a whip. Every time he swung at Whitfield, however, the clown tumbled down instead of hitting his target. Another clown climbed a tree close to Whitfield's pulpit and shamefully exposed his nakedness before all the people, eliciting a chorus of hoots and laughter. Every attempt to silence Whitfield failed, and he went on preaching and praying and singing for three hours. Rotten eggs, dead cats, clowns. What a combination. Can clowns with whips and dead cats separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? It may cause you to have nightmares the rest of your life, but it, it will not separate you. All manner of opposition can come at the Christian. And Paul's not writing this as a cold armchair theologian. He knew this very well. Danger, he writes about that in 2 Corinthians 11. Nakedness, that is poverty, famine, the basic necessities of life. I can imagine someone thinking God doesn't love them when they don't have the basic necessities. And this text tells us that God has us. Can sword, that is execution itself. No, before Paul gives us the answer of no in verse 37, he does a bit of biblical reflection. Throws in a verse, verse 36. And Paul does what he often does. He, he throws in an Old Testament verse nobody's really familiar with. So he does Psalm 44, verse 22, which is a text about God's people suffering. And I think the reason Paul throws it in is just to make a very simple point, and that is suffering is a natural part of the Christian life. It's par for the course. And don't think your trials means God doesn't love you. No, the cross has demonstrated that he's for you. 
And so what he says in verse 37 is, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. A very interesting phrase, and isn't it more, what is more than a conqueror? (laughs) A super conqueror. Why more than a conqueror? Well, I think Paul is saying something here that really is awesome. He's not just saying you can endure suffering as a Christian. But when he says, in all these things, again, I think this is a reference to Romans 8, 28. All these things are actually working for our good. All of these afflictions, they're not separating us from the love of God. They're actually accomplishing the purposes of God. We are more than a conqueror. These afflictions are actually accomplishing God's number one priority for our life, which is not to give us a comfortable, safe little life, but to make us like his son. That's his number one priority. And these trials, these afflictions, they're not separating us from the love of God. No, they're actually working together for our good and for God's glory. And how do you have that kind of gospel optimism in the midst of your trial? Notice, it is through him who loved us. So this is not baseless triumphalism. All I do is win, win, win. It's not that kind of conqueror. It is a Christ-centered conqueror. Apart from him, we don't conquer. Apart from him, we are crushed. But it's through him that we are conquerors. Through him who, notice it there, loved us. Past tense. That is a statement about the cross. The one who loved us and gave himself for us is assuring us that these afflictions will not separate us from God's love. No, no, no. These afflictions are actually accomplishing God's purposes. We are super conquerors, which is quite remarkable. So my friends, you may have all kinds of trials in your life, but underneath it all, there can be a satisfaction in Jesus that gives you a joy that this world doesn't understand. Paul isn't saying you won't suffer or that suffering is is delightful. No, he's saying that there is something for the Christian that we know and we possess that the world doesn't understand. As Paul puts it in one place in 2 Corinthians 6, I'm sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. That's the Christian life. We are sorrowful. There are many things that produce sorrow in our hearts. But underneath the sorrow is a well of joy that the world doesn't possess. We want them to possess it. We want them to know it. And so, my friends, let this text help you in your discontentment. This is a discontent, dissatisfied world. And for the Christian, we see in this text what our hearts have always wanted, that we are only satisfied in Christ, that our hearts are restless, as Augustine put it, until they find their rest in him. It's in him. Even in the midst of trial, you can have that kind of assurance, that kind of confidence, that kind of satisfaction. You don't need more stuff to be more satisfied. You don't have to take the philosophy of philosopher Skilo. I wish I was a little bit taller. I wish I was a baller. I wish I was a girl who looked good. I would call her. I wish I had a rabbit in a hat and a six-foot Impala. You guys know that one? It's a a new one. Um, I wish I had this. I wish I had. No. What do you need more than the truths of Romans 8? Look no further. You can have the world, but give me Jesus. Paul ends in verses 38 and 39 with, again, some possible separators, and he says, I am sure of this. I'm persuaded of this. And he goes through really like four pairs of threats 
things that could potentially raise the, the question, has, have I been separated from God's love? Have I been pull, plucked out of his hand, as it were? And the answer, again, is no. Death and life, that is the realm of human existence, can anything separate us? Angels and demons, that is, anything in the spiritual realm. Things present or things to come, that is, the events of history. Can anything that's, that's happening or has happened or will happen separate me? And then he drops in this little, or powers, that is the dark powers of evil. Now, as we often sing, no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. Or height nor depth, that is an all-encompassing summation of everything. Nothing in heaven or hell or in all creation can separate us from the love of God. And notice how he ends it, in Christ. We are in Christ God will not let go of his son, and we are in his son. Nothing can separate us from the grip of God's amazing grace, a grace that we don't deserve, do we? I mean, we enjoy all of these privileges because God has been merciful toward us. God has been gracious to us. He gave up his son, and now he is graciously giving us all things. So my friends, Romans 8.31 really is true. God really is for us. Verses 32 to 39 prove it to us. And I pray that you would work these gospel truths into your heart so that it would lead you to worship, lift you from despair, embolden you for mission. That's what Romans 8.31 did for a guy named Philip Melanchthon who was kind of the running mate of Martin Luther during the, the Reformation. He was a scholar, a great preacher, and he, he had a much gentler disposition than Luther. And they stood together until the very end. In fact, Melanchthon gave the sermon at Luther's funeral. One can today visit Wittenberg, and what you see is these words, Romans eight thirty one, hanging over the castle door. It really was sort of the battle cry for these two men. It's what made them bold and what made them uh, persevere in the midst of trials. And when Melanchthon was dying, he had pastor come over and read the Bible to him. And when pastor got to Romans eight thirty one, he kept saying, as history records it, read those words again. Read those words again. That's it. That's it. If God is for us, if God is for us, who can be against us? Melanchthon died with those words on his lips. And you can die with those words on your lips. And you can live with those words on your lips. My friends, one day, by God's amazing grace, we will see the glorified Savior who has been praying for us, who is, at this moment, interceding for us. What a Savior. And on that day when we see him, we will not regret having poured out our lives as a living sacrifice of worship to him. God really is for us. And I pray, as Ray Ortland has put it well, that the felt love of God would make you a heroic Christian. It would embolden you. It would free you. It would cause you to soar in worship. I pray that you know this love and that you are thoroughly convinced of it. And if you're in the room and you're not a Christian, 
We've been where you're at. And I don't preach to you from any position of superiority. I'm a beggar telling other beggars where the bread is. We just say to you, will you taste and see that the Lord is good? Do you really want to turn your back on this God? Where else are you going to go? How will you conquer death? There is a way. There is a way to be reconciled to God. And it's through faith in this Savior. And we call you to believe in him. The one who will never let us go. We call you to come and enjoy these privileges with us. We are the community of those who have been loved by God. And in response, we return love to him, don't we? In response, we, we endure all of our difficulties by his grace. And it is in him and through him that we seek to make disciples of all nations until we see him. And so may God write Romans eight thirty one not just on a piece of paper for us as we take notes, but upon our hearts. And may we live out of the overflow of it. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that the gospel tonight would indeed cause us to sing. It would give us encouragement. It would embolden us for the work that you've called us to. I pray for my friends in this room who may be dealing with various trials in their lives. I pray that by the Holy Spirit tonight, you would assure them of your love. You would impress upon their hearts the reality of your grace. You would cause them to see the beauty and wonder of Jesus afresh. And Lord Jesus, we just pause to say you are worthy, that there is no one like you. You just didn't give up your life, that would be amazing enough. That you weren't just raised from the dead, but you're interceding for us. I pray that we'd be overwhelmed by your grace. We would live out of the overflow of awe and wonder. We would live for the day in which we see you. And I pray that that would fuel how we order our lives here on this earth in this short little life you've given us. So be glorified even now, Lord Jesus, as we sing to you of your greatness, of how worthy you are. We pray all this in Jesus' good name. Amen.